Well, here we are on Resurrection Sunday. And yet we don't we don't fully we don't fully get this thing of Resurrection Sunday if we didn't start at Good Friday. And so many of us also were able to gather on Good Friday, and there we, there we were reminded. We were reminded there of the grief and the loss and the despair. We, did, we actually described in a, in a reading what it might have been like for Mary, the mother of Jesus, standing near to the crucifixion and seeing her son die. And we know that he had told them ahead of time what this was about, but we also know from the reports following his death that his followers didn't really understand it yet. And so, certainly among them, there was this question, why did God allow this? And that question resonates with us because it's a question probably every one of us have asked at one time or another. In the midst of the troubles, in the midst of the sorrows, the sadness, the the heartache of life. Sometimes it breaks us to the point of despair. Why? If If God is God and if God is good, then why has God allowed this? And on Good Friday we remembered. Well, Jesus told a story about about the tragic deaths probably as a result of an earthquake as well as the tragic deaths as a result of of human brutality and clear and obvious sin. And the fact is that we are broken people in a broken world and that's why this, that's why these things happen as they do. That, That even as the fault lines run right through Israel that would cause such an earthquake, so also fault lines run through every human heart. We are broken. We are guilty. We are sinful. And the hurts of this life come as a result of sin in humanity and in the creation itself. We are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. And yet God sends His Son into this brokenness, that there he goes into death itself for us to save us from it. He's crucified, dies, and is buried. And if that were the end of it, surely we could stand with Mary and say, why did God allow this? And yet... Now, the brokenness that is our experience, the brokenness that God even allows us to see so we will not be able to console ourselves with, oh no, it's really okay, everything will really be all right. That keeps getting interrupted by reality, doesn't it? It's not all right. Something is, something is in fact, urgently wrong. And yet, God's own Son it comes into the wrong for us that he might redeem us out of it, that he might rescue us out of it, out of death itself, into new life. And so that's why we gather from Good Friday then again on Sunday. And the reason we gather every Sunday is because of this first Sunday, the Resurrection Day. 
It's pretty remarkable that, that we worship on Sunday instead of it being the first day of the work week the way that it is in Israel or, other, or, 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 or most Muslim countries in the world. It's actually pretty remarkable because the seventh day, Saturday was the capstone of God's creation. God marked it down. But now Sunday. Sunday, the first day, remembers Resurrection Day, the inauguration of a new creation in Christ. A day that changed everything, but this day, Resurrection Day only changes anything for those who believe it. Chances are, everyone here this morning knows something about Easter, about Resurrection Sunday, about Jesus who died and rose from the dead. You've heard something of that before. The issue is not whether you've heard it, but have you believed it? Could something that unusual, unheard of, actually be true? Honestly, it's a lot to believe. You think about it. Really, it's a lot to believe. Well, then honestly, what would it take? What would it take for you to believe? That's what I want to talk to talk to us about this morning. That's the question I want to put before us. What would it take for you to believe? That question leads me into a story. It's a story of two men, a story of life and the afterlife. There are many differences between these two men, but one thing made the ultimate difference. One of them believed and one of them didn't. What would it have taken for that one to believe. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16. We have been doing a, a, a series through the Gospel of Luke. We actually started around Christmas time and we just stayed, stayed with it. And it's brought us to this time of year and the chapter we would be next on this Sunday morning, the chapter we would come to would be Luke chapter 16. I know the resurrections in chapter 24 will, will get there. Hang with me. But I... I find it remarkable that we're in chapter 16 this morning. Because in chapter 16, I find this story. Well, before I tell you much more about it, let's just read Luke chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 19. And if you're following along in the church Bible there in front of us, you'll find us on page 875. So I invite you to follow along. It's a story of the rich man and a man named Lazarus. No, not that Lazarus. Maybe. Ah, oh, let me read. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, contrast, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even stray dogs came and licked at his sores. He couldn't fend them off. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Lazarus in like manner had bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great 
chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none can cross from there to us. And so the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him to my father's house, for I have in my father's house five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will surely repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone were to rise from the dead. Wow. So there's a rich man. He seems to have all that life could offer. And then on the other hand, there's a poor man. His name is Lazarus. And that's a very common name. I actually read it was the third most common name among Jewish men in the first century. So there are many Lazaruses running, running about. Here we went, run into one of them. The name means his God helps him. The one, or actually, the one God helps. Lazarus, the one God helps. He lies at the gates. He lies at the gates of the rich man's home. Now, the word here for gates is a word that refers to a magnificent entrance, a large and imposing entrance to cities or temples or palaces, or maybe in this case, a palatial home. This rich man has some nice digs. He's got a grand entrance to it all, and there at the gates lies this beggar. At his death, Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Some versions translate that Abraham's bosom. It means the same. But don't think of Abraham's bosom as a location, as a place to which people go. No, he goes to a place where Abraham is, but there he's seated right at Abraham's side. It's as if Abraham has his arm around him. In the same way that John, at the, at the table of the Last Supper, he's leaning right up against Jesus as they recline at the table together. It's that kind of image. He's that close. It's, an, it's the honored position at the table for sure. The rich man also died and was buried. And not much is said about that at all. Sure, he was duly honored, I imagine, by his family, perhaps by the community. But it's a very brief and impersonal description in contrast to the poor man who was given the best seat in the house, right there with Abraham in the afterlife. Now let's talk about that afterlife for a minute. You, you're probably thinking, well, what about going to heaven? What, this doesn't sound like what I'm expecting. Well, we think of going to heaven when we die, but that was not the expectation before Jesus' death for us. It's only after Jesus dies for our sin that our guilt is, is gone. It is, our, our, our burden of sin has been taken away from us, paid in full, and it no longer stands between us and God that we could be received and embraced into God's presence. So, in the Old Testament era, prior to Christ's death, then th there are those who believe God, who are the righteous, who are the blessed, and there are those who do not believe God and who will be cursed in the future. Both of them go to the place of the dead, a place in Greek called Hades. And the blessed and the cursed are separated in the afterlife in, in, afterlife, in two sides of Hades. 
There's one side called paradise. Jesus also refers to that, uh, to the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not heaven. Jesus doesn't ascend to his Father till after his resurrection. But today, when they die, they will go to paradise because the thief has believed. And then on the other side is the place of torment. And as described, there's no way after death to transfer from one side to the other. There's no way to earn or to receive an upgrade in the afterlife. To be blessed or to be damned is decided in this life, not in the next. And so there is the rich man on his side of the chasm. He's used to the poor serving his needs. So he continues to express that self-centeredness. Did you notice that? Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to serve me, to share just a bit of water to cool my tongue. It's ironic. Now, I noticed there, first of all, that the rich man seems to have the same bent in the afterlife that he had in his life, that others should serve him. How we are shaped in this life, we will carry with us into God's future. It's ironic that the rich man would expect to receive mercy from Lazarus after death when he had no mercy to give to Lazarus in his life. There was a sense of entitlement even then. But Abraham gently explains that he cannot. Because there's a great chasm between them. None can cross from torment to paradise. Also, any of those who might want to go from paradise to the place of the torment, they are not able to do that either. As we were talking about this passage in the, in a, among a group of men that meet together earlier to talk about the sermons that are coming, as we talked about this, somebody says, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Why would he say that? Why would anybody on the paradise side want to go to the tormented side? Well, maybe they wouldn't, but maybe they would. Maybe Lazarus would actually have been willing to do just that. Because maybe a follower of Jesus would actually go from the paradise side into the tormented side, would actually take some sacrifice for the sake of others, because isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus is the one who was able to cross that chasm. Jesus is the one who actually leaves heaven's paradise and he enters into this broken and sin-cursed creation for us. And he endures it. He takes it upon himself even to the point of death, even death of the cross. He becomes cursed for us that we might be made right with God in him. So, Lazarus might have done that, but it's not, it's not possible. It's interesting that the rich man is not described as being particularly evil. What has led to his being outside of paradise is more a sin of neglect. He neglected mercy toward others, but more importantly, he neglected his own need of mercy from God. And so, he, there's nothing that can be done for him now. There is no upgrade on that side of the afterlife. And so what he thinks of, he finally thinks of others. He thinks of his brothers. What about his brothers? Could there still be a chance for them? He asks Abraham then, at least send Lazarus to his father's house. For in his father's house, he has five brothers. It's interesting, actually, that there was... In fact, one of the things we wonder about when the stories of Jesus, 
the parables that Jesus tells and the stories that he illustrates a point with, we wonder, are these stories actually true? Is Jesus, know, because of all that he knows about humanity, is he actually reaching into the past farther or nearer and pulling up a real story to illustrate what he's telling? Or is it just illustrative? We don't really know, but I do know this. There was a rich man in Jerusalem at the time of Christ who was actually very rich. He lived in a palatial home. His name was Caiaphas because he was the high priest. That's why he had such a nice home. That's why he was so wealthy. The high priesthood had become a very profitable office. And he had that office because he was the son-in-law of Annas, who was the high priest before him. But Annas had fallen. He'd, he'd extended himself too far. He was, he was getting a little too big, and so the Romans decided to take him out. But he still exerted a lot of political influence in Jerusalem, and he gets his son maneuvered into the office in his place. And Annas has five of his own. He gets his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But he also has five sons of his own. And following Caiaphas, each of those five sons of Annas also take a turn in the high priesthood. He maneuvers each one in line, one after the other. They have made the high priesthood a very profitable family business. Okay, so there's a rich family, well-known, with five brothers, well-known. In Jerusalem at that time, but the ironic part of the story is these high priests... Of the, of the family of Caiaphas and Annas would be Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection or life after death. They didn't believe in it. They believed that we serve God in life, we, we offer the sacrifices at the temple for our sins, and we serve God faithfully in this life according to the law of Moses, and God will bless us for it in this life. And they, of course, themselves were saw to it that they were very well blessed in this life. But they didn't believe anything about a future. So certainly it would be alarming to Caiaphas's five brothers if somebody were to return from the dead and visit them. Sort of like a whole new level of the ghost of Passover past, right? Okay. So this rich man now now becomes the beggar. He begs Abraham, please send Lazarus to warn my brothers not to come here. Warn them instead to seek God's mercy. But Abraham says, well, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. They have a clear and compelling witness of God's word. Let them hear what God has already said to them. But he says, no, they won't hear it. They ignore God's word. They, they don't believe most of it. They consider it myths and fables. But surely, if someone were to come back from the dead, that would confront them. That would get their attention. Then they would surely believe and repent. You see, for this man's brother, it's a matter of this question, isn't it? What would it take for them to believe? Surely if this or surely if that, then they would believe. They have God's word, but they haven't paid attention. But if God would only, only what? If God would show himself in some mistakable way, then, then surely then, then they'd believe. Well, 
tell me, assume, assume just for a moment, indulge me just for a moment, assume that God is God and we are not, okay? Let's just pause and assume that for a moment. God is God and we are not. If that is the case, then tell me, what shall God do for you to give you a reason to bother to listen? Sounds a little cheeky, doesn't it? Sounds a little too big for our britches for us to address God in such a way. If, if, if it's as if we would say, if God really wants me to pay attention, he's going to need a, to work a little harder for it. It reminds me of something that we often say. When talking about the Bible, we might say something like, well, what God is trying to say here is, indulge me again for a moment, God is not trying to say anything. We might be or might not be trying to listen. But it's, not, it's never a problem with God saying. It's always a problem with our listening because God has said it very well. God has said it very clearly through history and through creation. God has made himself known. And Romans tells us that we push that down because we don't want to hear it. There's where the problem comes. There's where the obstacle is. The obstacle is with us. Abraham says to them, God has spoken in his word through Moses, through the prophets, that they want to hear from God. Well, he's near at hand to be heard. Isn't it interesting also that Abraham here is the spokesman for God? Abraham here is the messenger who says, you need to believe what God has said. Because isn't that what's said about Abraham? Abraham is the one that we know from the book of Moses, Genesis, that Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him. For righteousness. That is the basis by which Abraham is in right relationship with God, that God would even call him Abraham, my friend. The basis of all that is not what Abraham does. His track record is not perfect, but it is because Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God at his word. Abraham believed that what God has said, that God will do. In fact, the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that, that Abraham even believed that God would raise a son from the dead, if necessary, in order to keep his promise. That's what Abraham believed. And so Abraham believed, but what would it take for them to believe? What would it take for you to believe? What significant sign would God need to do? For this man, for his brothers, the word of God was not enough. But if that was verified by someone coming back from the dead, if that was verified by some great miracle, then they would believe. Well, what would it take for me? What would it take for you? What should God do for us? Well, Abraham's reply is no, no. If they won't hear, and it's not that God is stubborn here. That's not the point. Don't hear it that no, God says, I've done this, I'm not doing it anymore. God did everything. God came all the way here, folks. What Abraham is saying is the reality of the fact that if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, if they won't hear the witness of God's word, then they won't hear even if someone were to come back from the dead. That's a bold statement. Abraham, how do you know? I mean, give it a try. I mean, what have we got to lose here? Men's eternity is at stake. Why doesn't God go ahead and stretch a little further? Surely they'd listen, wouldn't they? Surely they'd pay attention. Well, the funny thing is, Abraham is right. 
Jesus is telling a story that in some ways is about to actually happen. I told you already about the connection of the rich man to Caiaphas and the five brothers in the high priesthood family. Well, in John chapter 11, which most scholars believe occurs right after the events of Luke chapter 16. So the different Gospels sometimes record different events. The events of John chapter 11 and 12 are only recorded in the Gospel of John. But they occur just before Jesus makes his entry into Jerusalem. They occur right around this Luke 16 time frame, just after this. And so, if we turn to Luke, or rather John chapter 11, that's when Jesus' close friend named Lazarus, Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, Lazarus has died. And so Jesus goes to Bethany to raise him from the grave. They go and visit, and Jesus says, roll the stone away. Lord, it's been four days. Surely by now he smells. <laughs> don't, don't open that now. How shameful. But Jesus says, roll away the stone. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes back from the dead. Comes back from the afterlife. And do the chief priests hear about it? Do Caiaphas and his brothers hear of this man rising from the dead? This man surprisingly named Lazarus. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. In fact, they, they get so uptight. Well, well, how do they respond? Do they repent? Do they believe because someone has come back from the dead and is telling us all about it and telling us to believe in Jesus? No. The chief priests, which would include those five brothers, those chief priests actually instead determine, decide that they're going to have to kill Lazarus again and this Jesus whom he won't stop talking about. That's the response. You see, Abraham was right. Now, if Abraham is right, it's not just a story, then that presses the point to us all the more, doesn't it? What would it take then for you to believe? If, if that wouldn't do it, what would it take for you to believe? Well, let me widen the circle a little bit. I've been talking to, 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 to folks that haven't, have, aren't yet sure that they could believe this. But what about the Christians? You say, well, I, those of you who say, I believe in Jesus, could, could I talk to you just for a moment? I, the rest of you can listen in, but I want to talk to those who believe and want to follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Well, do you really? I mean, all of us know what it's like to believe at one level and then another at different times, don't we? Can I really believe God in this? Jesus has been having this conversation about resurrection. He's been having this conversation with his disciples, with his closest followers too, hasn't he? He keeps telling them that he is going to be rejected, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, and on the third day he's going to rise from the dead. And yet they don't really believe it. They don't believe that, A, that should happen, and after most of it does, they still don't believe that the resurrection could happen. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 24. That section that we actually read a little earlier. In Luke chapter 24, you have that first day of the week when the ladies who watched where he was laid, where he was buried, now they come back. Now, 
Now they come back on Sunday expecting to finish the job of preparing the body for a proper burial. Only there's a problem. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Taking the spices they prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, angels apparently. As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, the eleven apostles, minus Judas, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Johanna. There's, there's the women who were there. But look at the response, verse 11. These words seemed to the apostles like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. That's surprising, isn't it? Jesus' disciples have seen him raise someone from the dead at least three times. There was Lazarus. There was Jairus' daughter. There was the widow of name who had her son brought back to life in the funeral procession. I mean, it got to the point that if you wanted to ruin a perfectly miserable funeral, invite Jesus. They had seen this happen on multiple occasions. They had been told by Jesus this is exactly what would happen on multiple occasions. He's had this conversation with them. It's astounding that they would think that the witness of the woman about Jesus actually being risen would be an idle tale, a delusion, a wishful thinking on their part. Their minds must be playing tricks on them. You know what I think happens there? Sometimes, sometimes the hard times of life make it hard to believe. Don't they? Sometimes the hard times of life make it hard to believe that what God has promised can really still be true. And yes, it is. It is true still. We see in the, in, that in my favorite episode in, in, in Luke's Gospel, the second part of Luke chapter 24. The story of the two on the road to Emmaus. Two of Jesus' followers are leaving Jerusalem. They have given up. They're going home. They're going to Emmaus, a small town, maybe seven miles away. They're so engaged in conversation about cannot believe, they cannot believe how things have turned out. They thought he was going to be the one, and yet has all come to nothing. Their hopes have been dashed. They've given up. They're going home. They're, they're so engaged in their conversation together, looking down, perhaps tear clouding their eyes. They scarcely notice another traveler who is catching up to them. In fact, that it's, it's Jesus who rose early in the morning to meet them on the road this day. And yet here, they're kept from realizing that it's him. So pick it up in verse 17. Jesus asked them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. When one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Does Luke not have a thing for irony? 
I mean, they are asking him, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened when he's the only one in all of Jerusalem that knows exactly what has happened? And he's about to fill them in. He says to them, innocently enough, well, well, what things? And they say to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers, Caiaphas and his club, delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him, just like he said. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, besides all this, now it's already the third day since these things happened. Third day. Just like he said. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he, they'd had a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they didn't see. And so apparently, they did not believe it. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now we would think, well, yeah, Jesus can get away with talking like that to him, but they don't know it's Jesus. They still don't know it's Jesus. There's a purpose they don't yet know that it's Jesus. But isn't this what all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory and then beginning with, catch it, Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, it has happened just as Jesus has said. He was crucified just as David had written in Psalm 22 over a thousand years earlier. He's buried in a rich man's grave as Isaiah had written 800 years earlier. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world just as Moses had written almost 1,500 years earlier. Moses and the prophets. Here we are again. Back to Jesus' point with the rich man and Lazarus. The risen Jesus, although they didn't know it's him, is telling them, isn't this what Moses and the prophets have said? God has been true to his word all the way through. He opens that word, and because they don't believe what God has already said in his word, then a miraculous experience, like even walking with the resurrected Jesus, going through the best Old Testament survey ever, that experience isn't going to do it unless they see it from his word. And so Jesus opens up the word of God to them, and they see it. They say later, did, our not, did not our hearts burn within us? As we walked with him on the road and he opened the scriptures to us. Yeah. They have to hear it from Moses and the prophets before they can realize it's Jesus. May I ask you again, may I ask all of us, what would it take for you to believe? Maybe you have been like the rich man. Well, if God sent somebody back from the dead, then I'd believe. Or if God did this or if God did that, can I state the obvious? God has done that. He has sent him back from the dead. God sent his own son into death for us in our place and then raised him. And so the book of Hebrews opens with a statement. Long ago at many times, and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. God has spoken in his written word. And God has come to us personally in the son of God, Jesus. 
whom he raised from the dead. And he was raised from the dead and he was seen and handled. He was seen and handled by those who knew him best, knew it was him, and then turned around. And and even though they might have denied him as cowards before, they now willingly give their lives to that truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. He appears at least on one occasion, to more than 500 people at one time, 500 people who were still living later on in the first century and could be called upon to verify the reality of it. It's historically verified. Eyewitness accounts. It really happened. And it happened for you. It happened for me. God has put his story right in front of you. Literally, it's sitting right in front of you. Not in a brief pamphlet, but a big book. Hard to read, I know. But it's enough for you to know that across the centuries of human history, God has been faithful to his promise. Over and over and over again. What he has said, that he has done. He's given you not only Moses and the prophets, but he's given you the gospels and the letters. God tells us our need. He shows us what's wrong with humanity And our own experience witnesses to it. And God tells us of his rescue and of his forgiveness. It's all in his book right there. And John 20, verse 31, gives us the reason for it. Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written down in the book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. What will it take? What will it take for us to believe? You have God's word. You have Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the Gospels, the letters. Why, even the book of the Revelation that that tells you how it's all going to wrap up. Oh, and, and God has brought Jesus himself back from the dead for you, for me. No, really, that's why he does it. You see, if Christ is not risen, we are still in our sin. We are still in our guilt. But 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, but in fact Christ is raised from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who sleep. The first fruits. The first fruits of a promised abundant harvest by God's blessing that Jesus is raised and so we will be raised with him to live in new life and to live with him forever. God has done this for you. God has done this for me. Our part The question before us is, can I believe it? Will I believe it? Will I trust Jesus' death for me? Will I accept his forgiveness for my guilt so that I could be restored into a right relationship with God? That's the question. Will you believe it? Perhaps even today has been that day. Maybe today's the day when you would press yourself with the questions. Well, what would it take, self? That's how I talk to myself. What would it take, self, for you to believe? And you'd say, yeah, this is true. God, I believe you concerning Jesus, your son. You can, you, you can say that. You can have that eternity after life changing moment right now, right where you sit. You can say, God, I believe you concerning Jesus who died for me, who rose again. And that by forgiveness of my guilt that is in him alone, I could be in right relationship with you and have life with you now and in all eternity. God, I believe you concerning Jesus. If that's your story, maybe this morning, or maybe your story is, you know, 
I've needed to believe God in this particular area. I've needed to believe God about this particular guilt of mine. Or I've needed to be able to believe God and trust him for this uncertainty in my future as I see it. And reminded from God's word, God, I believe you. I believe your promise. I'd love to talk with you further. If this has been the time when you've said, yes, God, I believe. Maybe talk with me. Maybe talk with somebody else here before you go. But, but take that, lean into it, step into, yes, God, I do believe you from your word to me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that you call us to believe. You invite us to believe, but Lord, you urge us to believe you. Father, you so condescend to the hardness, the unwillingness of our hearts because you love us. So like a, a father with stubborn children, you continue to come after us and press us to face you that we might know you. Lord, I do, pr I do pray for those here this morning that maybe this is the morning Maybe this is the time right here in this place where they have or are able to confess in their hearts, God, I believe you concerning Jesus who died for me for my guilt. He was raised from the dead so that my guilt gone, I have forgiveness in Jesus and can have right relationship with you now and forever. God, I believe you concerning Jesus. Oh, Lord, for some of us, maybe it's, God, I believe you for the uncertainty that I'm facing. I believe you in the midst of the trouble that I don't know my way out of. I believe you, Father, for particular guilt that my mind doesn't want to let go of. But this morning, I will trust Jesus for forgiveness in this also. Father, we thank you that you so loved us that Jesus came into this brokenness and died in our place. And Father, we praise you in song. We praise you in our lives this morning and forward because Jesus is risen from the dead and we who believe you have new life in him. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. And all who believe said, amen.